Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Robert Pondicio. Mr. Pondicio is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the author of How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. Robert, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Uh, thank you, and, and kudos to the name of this podcast. I'm, I'm probably going to steal it. Uh, it it's it's a, how I probably like to or should describe myself, um, you know, a, a, a cranky optimist. Well, uh, that uh, I, I work for a gentleman who uh, is incredibly optimistic in, in what he does. I think Bob Luddy sincerely believes that uh, we can, in fact, change the world in a positive way. And he, he, he will endlessly talk about how education has that possibility. But he's also one of the most realistic people I've ever had the privilege of meeting to just uh, he will call something nonsense if he thinks it's nonsense. And that gives him a curmudgeonliness. Oh. Well, I, I, I share your admiration. I, I, I had the opportunity to hear Mr. Luddy speak at, a, at an event in Manhattan, uh, in New York City, uh, a couple of years ago. And I was so inspired by, by his talk that I actually arranged to come visit one of your schools uh, a few years ago, or about two years ago, uh, pre-pandemic. Pre it, was, it was a little more than a drive-by, uh, but I spend uh, a fair amount of time in North Carolina for lots of reasons. Uh, it's an interesting education state, and, and, and not the least reason is my daughter's uh, now an alumni of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I've become a huge uh, fan of their basketball and football team. So I don't, I don't need much of an excuse to visit Carolina, um, but I, I, I'm hoping uh, now that the world is resuming its, uh, its normal shape um, to spend some more time visiting in person uh, some of, of your schools, because it's, it's just a fascinating model. If you're a school oh. choice advocate as I am, the idea of high quality, low cost, private classical schools is, is a pretty compelling proposition. Well, I, I think we, we certainly do everything we can at Thales Academy to uh, really figure out where are the places where we can cut cost without cutting quality. Uh, I, I'm always astounded at what our teachers can do. I mean, we have, an ama we have amazing faculties at each of our campuses, and it's really a matter of finding the best people, give them the best tools, the best structure, and then set them loose with a group of kids and hold those kids to high behavior expectations and give them a healthy dose of, you know, to be a, to have a happy life, you need to be a virtuous person. And we're gonna help you learn a lot and learn to live well and do well. And lo and behold, that, that combination all seems to work really, really well. It sounds so simple when you say it that way, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it, it does sound simple. I, I've, I've listened to plenty of uh, people come to professional development conferences and sat there as a teacher thinking, you haven't met my kids. <laughs> <laughs> It does so let me make sure I understand this. So, so, so good curriculum and high expectations for academics and behavior. So, so that's the secret. Oh, I see. <laughs> I mean, okay. oh, why didn't anybody tell me that? I mean, it's I, there's honestly, I, I, I don't know if you would agree or disagree with this, but I don't think there's a ton new to innovate about in education. It's really a matter of figuring out what are the things that have worked for centuries and what are the ideas yeah. that people have always found to be worthwhile. And really the question for the place for innovation is, uh, is one of application. It's how do we contextualize that to our time as opposed to a different time? Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, I did not have, I wish I had a classical education as, as a young person. And if I could go back in a time machine, I probably would do everything in my power to, to secure one. Uh, but there's obviously, uh, I mean, I can't take issue with anything you just said. It's, you know, um, 
good ideas get passed down through the centuries for a reason. Um, I mean, I, I kind of always make make sport of this because you know there's that that old cliche about uh, how everything changes, I, except if Rip Van Winkle were to come back a hundred years later, he'd recognize school. And and that's always, you know, that story's always told like, oh, tisk tisk, isn't it terrible that this thing is so unchanging? Well, that that's not a flaw, that's a feature. If, if things don't change over a long time, there's a reason for that. They still have value for us and, and they still resonate with us. So sometimes, you know, I, I share your, you know, your, your um, concern about the overuse of the word innovation uh, in education. Sometimes it just takes on the shape of innovation for innovation's sake. And, and maybe we should really focus on, on, on doing the things that we know are valuable better. Uh, that kind of innovation. Now you've got my attention. But if it's just you know change for change sake, well then you can have a real good career in education uh, by pushing that you know kind of thing. You'll always be in demand at you know South by Southwest EDU, for example. Um, but it's not necessarily what's what's in the best interest of kids. I think our one of the phrases we use a lot at Thales is uh, we're we're always on the lookout for what's proven and what's true. Uh, we're yeah. certainly welcome. We're certainly open to trying new things. But we're trying new things with the attitude of sort of a beta test. And yeah. when something comes to us with decades or centuries of results, that's much more interesting. Uh, and then if we can take some new technology and figure out how can we use this technology to increase the efficiency of what we do, that's a really exciting question. Uh, the yeah. let's, let's get a new gadget just so we can tell everyone we have a new gadget. That's somehow a less exciting question. <laughs> But. Yeah, I, no, I think that's right. And, and, and two, let's not lose sight of the fact that I think what parents expect from schools um, is, uh, you know, it, it, it's there's sort of eternal homilies, so to speak. You know, we, we want our kids to learn the best of what's been thought and said. Um, we, we want our kids to learn to, to, you know, play nice with others, so to speak. Um, I mean, I don't want to take the conversation in a completely different direction, but I'm, you know, a, an unapologetic school choice guy. But sometimes I push back on my school choice friends who you know have this uh, especially you know post-covid who say oh you know we've completely broken the model now and we're all going to become a nation of homeschoolers and like eh, i'm not so sure about that you know we, we we like to send our kids to these things called schools and and again that's not a flaw that's a feature there's stuff happening in those buildings that we value and and have for a very very long time and i i imagine we will continue to for a very long time well, I think uh, I think that's right, and in part because uh, I I came through the homeschooling for a time myself. Uh, I was homeschooled up through ninth grade, and then I went to a brick and mortar school. A long discuss, long running, years running debate with a friend over the use of the phrase "real school" to describe the traditional school, <laughs> as opposed to the uh, fake yeah. plastic schooling that is homeschooling, which is that's nonsense. But. Yeah. Um, I think it, 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 it's not just a matter of, aha, here are books and a student and a table and you're homeschooling. To be successful at homeschooling requires a certain approach from parents and an understanding of what does it mean for a parent to really be in charge of a child's yeah. education. And that's that's not something that you can come to lightly. And Ooh, boy, thank you for saying so. Since I, came through, since I came through, I mean, I was there in the uh, uh, Mike Ferris, HSLDA kind of, uh, homeschooling was really probably 70 to 80% conservative, evangelical, sure, sure. a lot of fundamentalist, uh, but it's, it's a much more diverse field today. I say all that to say that yeah. plenty of people found themselves in a position of being temporary homeschoolers. And Absolutely. Well I said. think they are very excited to uh, have schools back because they realize there's 
Uh, <laughs> it's I was, hard. <laughs> it is really hard. And to be an effective. Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. You, it, it really is a place where it takes a village. I mean, you need, not everyone can teach physics. Not everyone can teach uh, upper level literature courses. Not everyone can teach uh, the languages and everything. Uh, it really, and not to mention, not everybody can do that. And you certainly can't do that at scale. Like you can't no, do think, that. I think with, that's right. Yeah, I, I, in my in a previous iteration, um, I, I worked with the Edie Hirsch Jr.'s Core Knowledge Foundation. I mean, that's his work has guided mine in in a lot of ways for the last you know ten or fifteen years or so. Um, but uh, uh, homeschoolers are devoted uh, to the core knowledge curriculum, and it's um, you know if you've been to a Barnes and Noble, you know you've seen those books. What your first grader needs to know, what your second grader needs to know. Well, that's that's Hirsch's core knowledge sequence, and a lot of folks who you know, as you suggest, have just decided, hey, you know what, I I, I want to do this myself for whatever reason, whether it's. Um, uh, you know, out of out of some kind of religious conviction, out of out of you know some other you know uh, just sense that hey, I can I can do this better. That those those series of books in the core knowledge curriculum has has often been an entry point for for a mm. lot of um, novice homeschoolers, and and they go from there. And, and I think it's great. I mean, you know, again, I want to be clear, despite the fact that I was just um, you know uh, talking warmly about traditional schooling, um, I'm I'm a big proponent of homeschoolers. Like your kid, your choice. You know, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, and and we shouldn't uh, you know assume there's one right way to do this for 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 every child. But but if whatever you decide, let's make sure that it's you know rich and rigorous and and um, you know that, that, that we keep our eye on, on on a good outcome for everyone. I love that 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 thousand flowers blooming. It reminds me of some of the things Russell Kirk talked about in terms of a uh, a really not a homogenous conservatism, but really a conservatism that values every culture and wants each culture to be itself most authentically. But it also reflects some of the uh, the pluralism dialogue I read about several years ago. Uh, I don't remember the scholar's name, but she did a study of, uh, of, of uh, Norway and Finland and Denmark, Scandinavian countries that uh, really embrace- It sounds a, like Ashley Burner. At, that's at her, Hopkins. that's her. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah she she's, was, she's uh, a good friend and and, her, her, her work was so eye-opening to me. I mean, like, you know, I, I've, I've worked in education for 20 years and, you know, the last decade or so in ed policy, I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit how little I knew about um, international education. And I think like a lot of folks, I simply assumed that the way we do schooling in the U.S. is that's the, the de facto standard for the rest of the world. It was eye-opening and bracing, honestly. Uh, to learn from Ashley Berner's work, uh, just how pluralistic um, just about every other country is compared to, to to the U.S. Where I mean, I don't want to oversimplify her work, but but basically the 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 the, the model in other countries tends to be government funded, uh, but but not government run. Uh, where we're here in this country, you know, eight out of ten, nine out of ten kids go to schools that are both publicly financed and publicly run. Uh, in England, in the Netherlands, and other countries. Um, you know, again, let a thousand flowers bloom. But that's what, what's interesting is they all follow a national curriculum, you know, where we, which or mostly we, we don't have that in this country for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that that that, that irksome document. What's it called? The, the, oh, the Constitution. That's right. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, it's it, it will be literally impossible and unconstitutional to impose a national curriculum. 
So, so it's, uh, I, I don't think we're ever going to uh, see anything uh, along those lines in this country for, for, for lots of reasons, but, it, but it, it would be easier to have a more uh, pluralistic uh, system of, of, of schools in this country if we had what, if we had the, the model, the literal model right. that other countries have. So we're kind of in betwixt and between and as a, a tireless curriculum advocate, that is, that is both something that, that is a, a blessing and a frustration. No, I can I can see that. I remember reading her work, and uh, the the thought I left was left with was that it is fascinating to think about. Uh, I want to say it was Norway. I might be wrong, but one of the no, it was Finland. It was Finland talked about she she identified thirteen different. I hate the word ideology, but it's the only word I've got for this. But thirteen different ideological perspectives that kind of govern different school systems that all had access to an equal pot of their version of federal funding for their That's schools. Right. And I was kind of thinking exactly. about, we, we functionally have that in a, in a way in terms of, I mean, if you want a particularly Catholic education, you can get that in, in America, in most places, you can get a, a sure. Baptist on your own dime, but, and that's, but that's the trick you can, it's all private in yeah. America. And, and then I started thinking about what would it, the, the big difference, at least in my mind, I, I wish she had spent more time on addressing was the size difference between the country she was studying and the United States. I mean, just the, I think the, the scale of what it would look like to have the, that diversity of systems in the United States uh, compounded with what you just mentioned with our constitutional federalism uh, means that it doesn't map on directly to what we're doing, but it's much more interesting, I think, than a sort of the, I think what we have, she, she identifies very clearly the sense that we have, we do have a default orthodoxy across public education in America that plenty of parents assume is what it was when they went through that, but it's shifted in a lot of ways. And yeah. so, like, and that's, that's tied, she, she does a great job showing how it's tied to federal funding and tied to yeah. education programs. And it creates this homogeneity rather than their uh, thousand flowers blooming approach. Well, you know, I, I can argue that round or flat, Josh. I mean, because one of the reasons, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm approaching 20 years in education because I, I didn't expect to be in this work for 20 minutes. And, and um, I signed up to be a, you know, South Bronx fifth grade school teacher 20 years ago. Um, and it was supposed to be a, you know, mid-career public service stint. And then I'd go back and, you know, get on with the second half of my career. And um, I was so scandalized, I guess you could say, by, by, by the experience that it became kind of my second career. But my precise interest became curriculum. Um, you know, I, I alluded to my, my fondness for E.D. Hirsch Jr.'s work, and, and I've told this story a thousand times. The reason that I became an unrepentant Hirschian is because he was the, literally the only theorist whose work described what I saw in my South Bronx classroom every single day which is children, children who could decode, uh, but struggled with comprehension. And, and that comprehension had nothing to do with what I was being told. Oh, they're not engaged. Oh, it's not culturally relevant. Oh, it's not about their experience. You know, Hirsch was the guy who was saying, um, it's background knowledge. And, and that was exactly what, what I saw. So, so the idea that there's somehow kind of a, you know, a homogeneity uh, about our curriculum, I, I have to respectfully disagree. There's no curriculum, which is the problem. I, I was just telling somebody else this story just the other day about how you know, very early on in my teaching career, I was teaching a literacy lesson. We had staff developers from, from the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project. And in my innocence and naivete, I remember asking the staff developer, okay, I, I get that I'm supposed to teach, you know, this reading skill, but, 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 but what's the reading? And she just kind of, you know, fixed me with this, this little, you know, uh, expression and said, well, Mr. Pondizio, you're, 
you're the best person to know what every child needs. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I just got here. That can't possibly be true. So I, I kind of intuited my way to, you know, to, to Hirsch's work, which is why it, it resonated uh, so much with me when, when, when I encountered it. And I encountered it on my own, of course, because Lord knows you weren't going to you know, come across this in, in ed school. And, and it's so funny. I mean, every time, you know, then and since I've invoked his work, you always hear among a certain class of, of, of teachers and, and, and professionals, like, oh, oh, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody takes that seriously. Like, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what this is about at all. It's about reading proficiency. It's about language proficiency. It's about idiomatic language. It's about background knowledge. You know, uh, it's, it's you know, not, not for nothing. His first book and most famous book was called Cultural Literacy. Um, but you know that that's exactly what my uh, my South Bronx fifth graders uh, exclusively you know a high poverty school uh, mm. that's that's what they were missing it, it wasn't you know they they were obviously no no less smart and diligent than any other kid uh, but but uh, they were missing that essential broad education um, that 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 they needed to be language proficient. It's not, you know. In other words, it's uh, and I've I've also stolen this idea from Dan Willingham uh, at the University of Virginia, uh, the cognitive scientist who who has a, a wonderful YouTube video that I, I recommend everybody see called "Teaching Content Is Teaching Reading." You know, if if you if you view reading comprehension and language proficiency as a skill, well, then you're missing the boat. It's you know, decoding is a skill. Uh, but language proficiency, mature, mature language proficiency, rests on shared knowledge and shared language and shared, you know, cultural references, a, 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 as it were. That that can be dicey in 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 our you know in this day and age. But um, you know, I often say, language doesn't care what we think. You know, language is what it is, um, and it's it's our job to to ensure that that every child um, has equal access to it. Well, let's let's uh, let, let's take that as a departure point then. Does uh, and that that I think that's a good transition into uh, at least the uh, the article that brought us together because I I was fascinated by your your recent article for the Fordham Institute uh, entitled I believe anti racism is misguided. Can I still teach black and brown children? I thought um, I was unfamiliar with your work prior to this, but I just thought that was a fabulous uh, kind of way to articulate uh, the ideas that you were going for. Uh, so uh, I wonder if you could kind of help us see the problem that you're seeing. Where, where uh, and I'm assuming Ooh. some audience, it's, it's possible that they don't know this phrase, anti-racism, that maybe they, they haven't read Ibram Kendi or, or other folks. So kind of give us a, a bit of a primer on what anti-racism is and where you see it in schools sure. and your take on all that. Yeah, and, and this is obviously a hot button issue for, for a lot of folks. Um, w whether you are a, um, you know, a critical race theory scholar or even just vaguely familiar with, with Ibram X. Kendi's book, which I think has been on the New York Times bestseller list for going on two years right now, titled How to Be an Anti-Racist. You know, th this has become a, a hot button issue, um, you know, not just in, in education, but in American life for the, for the last couple of years. Um, so, I mean, just to, you know, paint a slightly fuller picture of, of my own kind of education background and the lens that I bring to this work. So I, I mentioned that I, you know, started off uh, as a two-year mid-career public service stint teaching in, uh, in a low-performing elementary school in the South Bronx. You know, that, that two-year commitment turned into five, and I never left education, got very interested in issues of curriculum um, got very interested in the ed reform movement uh, because, um, you know, I, I, uh, 
again, what, what animated me in this work was what I perceived uh, to be kind of the injustice being done to, to the kids that I, that I taught and cared about. Um, but the ed reform movement, um, you know, as conceived 20 years ago, you know, Teach for America, charter schools, uh, No Child Left Behind, et cetera, et cetera. It, it felt to me like it was missing something profound, which is, um, and I don't want to oversimplify or, or offend anybody, but, but um, you know, I, I think you could paint a picture of the ed reform movement as kind of losing interest at the classroom door. In other words, everything that we do in education reform, like chartering, like testing, et cetera, tends to be about the structures outside of schooling. But we assume, and, and I don't mean to pick on you, Josh, but it, kind of what, what you said before about, you know, the, the homogeneity of, of what happens in the classroom. Oh, it's all the same. Well, it's not the same. I mean, there's, there's great differences in classroom culture, curriculum, pedagogy, et cetera. And it just seemed to me that nobody was, was kind of like paying attention to that. So I always, you know, describe myself as the weirdo who says, um, can we talk about what the kids are doing all day? Because that matters too. So that, my, you know, my, my, my last 20 years has really been about what do the kids do all day? Um, and that led me into um, uh, what I jokingly describe as my side hustle, teaching civic education at a charter school in, in Harlem on and off. So e even though I um, had five years full-time in the classroom, I'd, I've been in and out of the classroom ever since. Um, if for no other reason, I, I, I want to be that, you know, rare guy in the education policy space who still is an active teacher. I think it's just important to keep that lens fresh. So this is all a long preamble to say, look, every kid I've ever taught, literally, without exception, has been black or brown, uh, predominantly, uh, maybe even exclusively low income. So the, the, the moral imperative of, of, of anti-racism well, I, I don't need to, to, to be sold on that. I'm, you know, I've been sold on it for the last 20 years. I mean, the, these, these, the, the, those students, not, not that we should care only in American education about you know, closing the achievement gap and about the, the interest of black and brown kids, but it's what led me into this work and what animates me in this work to this day. So I'm sold on the kind of the moral imperative and, and hence uh, the, the, the title of that piece. Look, I've got some skepticism about uh, what we're being told now is best practice for, for, for these kids. Um, and, and is that disqualifying? Because I, I've, I focused a lot of my work, Josh, in the last couple of years on high-performing urban charter schools. Mm -hmm. I taught in one. Uh, I wrote a book uh, a year or so ago about the Success Academy network uh, of schools in, oh. in Manhattan. Which, which uh, the title of the book was How the Other Half Learns. And it was based on a year of, of embedding in one of those schools, uh, literally across the street from where I was a student teacher and a few blocks from where I was a fifth grade teacher. So it was kind of an interesting compare contrast exercise in the best and worst that we can do for, for uh, low income kids of color in, in the neighborhood where I used to teach. Um, a lot of these charter schools are um, visibly now retreating from a playbook that has been quite successful. I mean, it's, I, I occupy a strange position in the ed reform world, which is that even though I'm, you know, I think my reform credentials are in pretty good order, I've, I've written, frankly, fairly critically about a lot of reform. And it's mostly because we missed the boat on, on curriculum, on instruction, on classroom culture, et cetera. Um, and, I, we, you know, we can talk about that at length, and I'll bore you to tears on it. But, but, but for now, suffice it to say that you know, to me, the one unambiguous good guy of the reform movement for the last 20 years has been urban charter schools. A lot of other stuff has been, you know, swings and misses, but we nailed that one. I mean, we are just sending the you know, schools like um, 
KIPP, Achievement First, Success Academy, Democracy Prep, where I was a teacher, and, and others, um, uh, Yes Prep, etc., cetera, um, have really done incredible work at creating a stable and sustainable uh, pathway for, for the least likely kids in American life to, to go you know, to college. And now we're sending you know, boxcar numbers of them, you know, year after year. And a lot of these schools have been um, have leaned heavily into um, uh, whether it's critical race theory or anti-racism, et cetera. And they're almost embarrassed in, in a sense by, by some of the, by, 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 the, by the culture and structures and curriculum that, that they have, uh, that they've has worked for them for the last 20 years. Um, so th that's the backdrop for for that piece that you you, yeah. um, you know, were nicely complimentary about. Um, you know, wait a minute. Let, let's let's just press pause here and 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 ask what is it? What is ex what exactly are the Ibram X Kendi's and Robin D'Angelo's who, who you know, wrote White Fragility uh, asking us to do? And and let's 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 think long and hard uh, about what this means. For, for curriculum instruction before we just kind of, you know, follow these ideas off the end uh, of a cliff. I mean, I wanna be absolutely clear about this, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, the moral imperative here, let's do right by, by our students of color, American students, obviously, uh, that, that's, that's essential. Um, but we have to like really look at our practices before we just kind of, you know, uh, because let's be candid, I mean, there's very few uh, enterprises in American life that are as fad prone as education. Uh, you know, we, we, we love the shiny new thing. And I don't mean this to sound dismissive, but, but let's make sure that what we're being asked to do um, is truly in the best interest of our least advantaged students. I think you're raising a really important question. I'm coming at this from the classical school perspective, which uh, really the classical school movement is, or at least in its modern iteration, is born out of the parental frustration uh, from multiple decades of kind of John Dewey's perspective on education sure. being the mainstream. And so in a large part, uh, classical schools are formed out of this uh, desire to recover a different answer to pedagogy and curriculum. Was where John Dewey emphasized skills and democracy and said that the, the goal of education is to produce an effective worker in the modern economy. That yeah. ultimately, it really failed to produce, to maintain, to keep substantive curriculum at the heart of schooling. No, I, I think that's right. And, and it's also, um, there, there's also, a, you know, a touch of Rousseauian fantasy about it that, you know, yeah. that, that every kid is born with, with everything he or she needs. And it's all we can do as adults is mess them up. And, you know, that's, that's. Um, so yeah, sure I, I raise all that comparison just to say that I, I, I think you're onto something very important because it seems to me right now, the push in the contemporary education, I started seeing it. I mean, even there was a, there was a long form article about a, uh, really uh, wealthy private school in Los Angeles that has gone fully woke and has uh, oh, yes. created a huge ruckus because they changed the reading list in their English classes. And there were parents who had been at that school as children and were looking forward to reading those same books with along with their kids again. And now all of that has changed. It started to come into so many different places that I think you're just, I because I, what I don't hear and what you're saying is some kind of like, rejection of the initial premises that Kendi and, and uh, D'Angelo are raising, but rather that we need to pause and actually evaluate, will making these kinds of changes actually benefit the very children that schools say they exist to serve? 
Yeah. I think that's a really helpful question. So uh, I wonder if you could uh, help us with like, where do you see, um, where do you see uh, existent harms as schools try to kind of become more anti-racist? Like, where does this actually? Yeah, yeah. I, I, let's, and I want to be super careful with this. Um, I mean, there's a reason that I write for a living and don't speak because it gives me a chance to like really be careful and measure my sure. words. So I'm, you know, I always get nervous in, in having to, you know, talk about these ideas as opposed to, to, to write about them. Um, look, you know, it, when the, the first time I heard about um, Kennedy's book uh, in the days uh, post George Floyd a, a year ago or so, um, I remember speaking to a, a lot of friends and colleagues like, help me understand this. Help me, help me understand what, um, you know, what it means to be an anti-racist educator. Um, and again, speaking to my colleagues who are, you know, black and Hispanic, as it were, and I remember having a conversation with 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 one teacher um, who I respect quite a lot, a young teacher in, in in Minneapolis, and she said something about, you know, how well look, it's you know, it's it's about holding kids to high expectations, uh, behaviorally and and academically. It's about uh, being as deeply invested, morally invested in your um, uh, in in your black and brown students as you are in your white students, etc. And I remember saying, okay, so in other words, you you want me to do what I've been doing for the last twenty years? Well, okay, great. Um, you know, and, and that's a point that I've raised. Uh, I'm not sure if I raised this in the piece that that you referenced, but I've certainly raised this in other writing that I've done. Um, that look, if if there's any collection of schools that I think can, can fairly claim to be truly anti-racist. It is those high-performing charter schools who have created this pathway to college and upward mobility that simply would not have existed if those kids were in schools like the one where I used to teach. That to me is the soul of, of, of anti-racism as I would define it. Kendi de de defines it quite differently, you know, famously, uh, his formulation, um, and, I, and I hope I'm going to quote him correctly here because it's mostly from memory, about how there is no such thing as not racist. You are either racist or you are anti-racist. And, and if you are anti-racist, then you are committed to, to dismantling the structures that create unequal uh, uh, outcomes. Um, you know, th this is a variation on, on the theme that I heard as a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, that you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Well, you know, there, there's, that's a rhetorical trick, but it's literally not true. Um, you know, you, you can be not racist. Let's just, you know, let's just say that. What, one need not uh, be, um, you know, uh, conscripted into a political movement uh, in order to, 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 to claim the mantle of, of, of not racist or anti-racist. So, um, you know, in other words, there, there, he's trying to, I think, um, you know, make a, make a rhetorical claim that is just, you know, illogical, as it were. So you know one of the one of the points that um, I raised in the piece, which you know it's interesting. You know everybody is quick to adopt these labels, but we don't like to always examine what he says. Well, you know one one really good example of where the, the Kendi version of of anti racism and educational practice are in direct conflict. You know for twenty years we've we've had or more we've we've had folks in in the charter and ed reform movement. Um, talking about the achievement gap and, and the need to close the achievement gap. I mean, if you are under the age of 40, you probably have never known a day in your career where you didn't think that's an important part of what I do. That's, 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 a, that's a, you know, a, a major goal of, of education in America is to produce more um, equitable outcomes and close the achievement gap. Well, along comes Kendi says, who says essentially, 
look to even discuss an, an achievement gap is 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 racist. Just the just the entire formulation. Um, you know, he, he uh, the, the 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 quote from him is: "We degrade black minds every time we speak of an uh, of an academic achievement gap based on test scores." Now, look, I you know I, I have a complicated relationship with with testing. Um, nobody should sentimentalize the days before uh, we had standardized tests. And you know, thanks, no child left behind. Every kid third through eighth grade takes a reading and a math test in America. Um, I, I've written critically over the years about the kind of, you know, the, 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 the deleterious effect that has had on, on school culture, um, and, and we needn't belabor it here. I mean, anybody who's been in the classroom knows what I'm speaking about, but we should not pretend that everything was well before there was testing. I mean, um, so, you know, if, 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 if the idea, you know, that, that Kendi is promoting is, is the, the act of testing, the idea of even discussing an, an achievement gap is, is de facto racism, well, that's just incorrect. Um, you know, if, if, the last thing I would argue that any of us should want is to go back to the days where we could just pretend that these gaps didn't exist and, um, and, and you know, go home thinking we've done, we've done our job. So, I mean, to me, so much of the, the, the energy, you know, both pedagogically and politically that goes into things like charter schools and school choice is driven by, by our uh, awareness and shame, frankly, over, over these achievement gaps. So I simply don't think that we're serving the, the, the interests of, of our students of color in accepting this argument that even to discuss uh, an achievement gap is is to engage in what what Kendi calls hierarchical thinking. I mean, I, you know, as an academic matter, I suppose I could, you know, uh, convince myself that I see what, see his point. But as a practical matter, it's insanity, frankly. To you know, we, we we should be spending all of our time trying to close that gap, not trying to pretend that to even discuss it, uh, you know, is 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 you know, verboten. Hey, that's fascinating because there's a there's something about the. Uh, and I, there's probably a precise difference, but in my mind, they, they, they're very much um, part of the same disposition. Uh, but there's something about the anti-racist argument and critical race theory as a whole that is an attempt to move away from reality. And I think part of that, uh, now my, my background, before I got into teaching, I was headed into pastoral ministry. Uh, so I, I finished a master's of divinity along the way. Uh, I was teaching full time to pay the bills and everything, and then fell in love with teaching as part of that. And thank God called me to schools rather than churches. Uh, but I mean, I think there's there's something there about the way we read wrongdoing in more theological terms, the way we'd read sin, and whether sin is individual or or corporate. And mm -hmm. the trick with I mean, there. And, and it's it's hard to draw a specific bright line because I don't want to say it's impossible for there to be corporate sins or systemic sins. But the problem when you think of sins as always being systemic, well, is that it becomes a thing that I, the individual, cannot consciously do anything about, except to just bemoan the fact that it's there. And yeah. but if if I personally am a racist, that's a sin that I can repent of and I can change. But if I'm subconsciously part of a massive overlay of systems of which yeah. I'm a beneficiary and a proponent of, but not at the point where I consciously realize it, then the only thing I can do is just bemoan the fact that this exists. Yeah. I, and it robs you of your agency as well. Completely. Right? I think that's, this, that's part of where there's a sense in which, uh, I think it's an ironic sense, 
the uh, uh, the movements who embrace anti-racist thinking uh, ironically frees people from the responsibility to look at their own interactions with other people and ask the yeah. question. I mean, it's uh, I mean, I'll just tell you, I, I've had times in my classroom where I've looked at my classroom and I've thought, who are the students that I regularly call on? And that that becomes a check kind of question for me to say, OK, do I have any subconscious patterns? Sure. Now, I can do that as a teacher and can consider that. And that's a helpful exercise, I think, for any teacher to do, to know, do I have any subconscious biases that might be influencing the patterns of behavior in my room? But I can do that as an individual. I can't yeah. do that as a representative of a system. Well, now, I think that's, that's, that's the problem. What you're describing just sounds like good, conscientious, uh, reflective yeah. practice. And that's what we should all, as teachers, be, be you know, questioning our own priors every day. That's helpful. Um, that moves the needle. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a spokesperson and can't be a spokesperson from, for Ibram X. Kendi and, and Robin D'Angelo and others. But, but if, if you were accepting the logic you know, of either you're an anti-racist or you're a racist, well, then that obligates you, and I think this is their point, to, to, to take a political stance in a sense, to say, no, we must dismantle these structures uh, because they are not producing equitable outcomes. And that's just, uh, I, I don't want to be glib or facile, but that's just, that does rob me of agency. I can no longer do what you're describing, Josh, with, with your students. I have to set my sights higher. And, at, at, and, and this, this takes me out of my, my locus of control, so to speak. So I, wh whether it's right or wrong, I just don't know that it's effective uh, to guide daily practice. But it, it also requires me to make a whole bunch of assumptions about the students in front of me based on their skin color, rather than getting to yeah. know the students, know their families, know their situations. If I've got a student who is uh, in, in uh, Raleigh is a, a UN uh, international refugee city. Um, so we occasionally get students at, at our schools who are from literally all over the world. And uh, if I just make, and I could be completely wrong about the assumptions about like this student's background, it, I think it matters a ton that as a teacher, I need to get to know these students and get to know their circumstances. And I, it, it, it really is wrong of me to make all these prior assumptions. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I mean, look, you know, I, if, I'm not a, a very good historian, but I know enough of, and, and boy, there's there's no field that is that is uh, has less grasp of its own history than the field of education. Um, in, in many ways, this is not new. Um, there has all you invoked John Dewey, but I mean, for going back to Dewey's day, there has always been a strain of thought, even a dominant strain of thought, in education practice and teacher training. That says, look, you know, we we are supposed to be agents of change. We are supposed to, um, you know, uh, use the, the 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 mechanisms of education to pursue social justice. I, I mean, they wouldn't have called it that in Dewey's day, um, but but there there has always been a, a strain of thought that says, you know, that as, as my my former co colleague at, at Fordham, Checker Finn, likes to say, that schools are just swell places to you know to 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 push a progressive agenda. Um, so that, that, that has been a, a, a feature of schooling for a hundred years or more. So, mm -hmm. so in many ways, this current moment of anti-racism of critical race theory is just the latest iteration of, of um, you know, these various uh, social projects in, in a sense. Um, and I'm not sure, frankly, and I get myself in trouble when I say this, uh, I'm, I'm not sure we have the track record to think that we, or to, to, to assume the moral authority here. In other words, 
um, you know, I, I, I say this all the time that, you know, the, my measure of how serious you are about social justice is how serious you are about literacy. Uh, last time I checked, two, two out of three American kids get to 17 years of age and are reading below proficient based on NAEP. Uh, only one out of five kids based on NAEP is proficient in history. And here we are having this grand national argument right now about our, you know, the, 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 the narratives that we teach in history. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to be, you know, make a joke about this, but it's, it's almost as if you've got five kids in the pool, you know, four of them are at the bottom and we're arguing about the kid who is swimming saying, well, should we teach him the backstroke or the crawl? You know, you, 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 you've got four kids at the bottom of the pool. Let's, let's, let's get them out. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I get frustrated. This is, this is my own curmudgeon um, piece of this, Josh. Um, you know, so, sometimes we, we, we are at risk of losing sight of the forest for the trees. You know, to be brutally blunt, we're just not that damn good at this in, in terms of, you know, raising kids to where they need to be uh, in terms of literacy and numeracy to be having this theoretical argument uh, in a way about curriculum and pedagogy, let alone, you know, uh, uh, taking strong stances and lecturing, um, you know, uh, people on policing, on immigration, on housing, et cetera. It's like, if I were in one of those fields and, and, and educators were lecturing me about that, I'd say, um, how's that reading thing going? Because, you know, why do you think that you have, you know, the, the, the standing to, to, to lecture these? And I don't want to be, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to pretend that those are not important social issues. They are. Sure. Um, but man, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying we have to stick to our knitting, but I do sometimes wonder where, where we think we have the moral authority to weigh in on these broader issues when we're not that good at, at our, our basic blocking and tackling and teaching. I think that's a fascinating way to phrase it. I, I, I may uh, co-opt your, your line, or at least I'll try to remember to quote you on the line about uh, the real social justice issue is, is reading proficiency. Sure right? is. You're the, you're the second uh, scholar I've, met, I've, I've heard in the last, in recent months, who's kind of made a surprising claim about the real issue of social justice. I, I heard a lecture by, uh, uh, I believe it was Mark Regnerus or it was Mark Yarhouse. I get those two marks confused okay. sometimes. I think it was Mark Yarhouse, now that I say that. But he was giving a lecture at Faulkner University about his recent book. And in the middle of it, uh, he made the he built an argument about the economic effects of marriage and mm. how marriage is has for centuries been a tool of economic stability. And he then presented he's not making a religious or theological argument about marriage. He's just literally looking at sociological and economic data to claim that, like, literally, uh, millennials have postponed marriage and the younger generation is not marrying and particularly in ethnic minorities, they're not marrying at the same rates that they historically have, which means they're not passing on generational wealth over time. And he then concluded yeah. that this is the social justice issue of our time. People should get yeah. married. I hear something similar in what you're describing. You know, I, I, I have a good friend who you should have on this podcast at some point. His name is Ian Rowe. Uh, he is the founder of a uh, chain of charter schools in New York City called Public Prep. They run girls prep and boys prep. He, he's since stepped down from that role. He's starting a new um, character-based high school. And, and he, um, he's, he's African-American. He has made himself incredibly unpopular. Um, and I've been in rooms where he gets hooted and shouted at um, for, for basically make, arguing for what, what, what uh, is known as the success sequence. 
His point is, and he's the most you know, even keeled, unflappable man. He says, look, you know, we know, uh, and I'm gonna boulderize this data. I mean, I'd have it precisely, he knows it by heart. Um, if you are in poverty and you graduate from high school, get a job, get married and have children in that order, you have something like a 95% chance of escaping poverty. Um, you know, Brookings school, Institute ran an article with that exact yeah. press. So, so his, his point is not, is not, you know, we need to preach this. His point is we need to point this out. And, and, and you know, if you think about this, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Ian's argument, not just because he's a friend, but because I think, you know, either we're going to be data driven in this work or we're not. And, and this is essential data. You know, this is not to say that you want to stigmatize families who, who have not followed that success sequence. But, but you know, we, we, we you know, valorize certain behaviors to children all the time. That's what a school does. Uh, everything from saying please and thank you to the lunch ladies, to holding the door open to our friends, to in high school, you know, sharing information about drinking and driving and smoking. So why would we think, well, oh, we, we, can, we can valorize all kinds of behaviors and, and, and tell kids what they should and shouldn't be doing, but not that. Well, that just strikes me as, you know, why, why would you withhold this information um, that generations of Americans have used to, to, to raise themselves into the middle class. That just seems almost cruel not to share that. Oh, I, I, I think it's crucial, but I wonder if we, we can go back to uh, your, your literacy argument, uh, if we could, because one of the things I've been fascinated, uh, I've written on this for, uh, for uh, the Acton Institute a couple months ago. Uh, they ran an article I sent them about, about this group, uh, but the uh, another kind of wing of the same mentality that's behind anti-racism and CRT uh, <laughs> has been a movement in predominantly in public schools to uh, they're, they're, this is the hashtag disrupt text people oh. um, they want the, they their application of anti-racism is really to decolonize the curriculum um, I became aware of it when uh, the Wall Street Journal ran their uh, children's literature columnist ran an article about uh, an attempt the attempt of a Massachusetts teacher she was yeah triumphant over Twitter about Homer kicked out of the curriculum. I remember this. Well, and, and but I, I, one of the things that I found fascinating, I'm going to read a, a, a quote from your article uh, for our audience, uh, was your focus on really on, on uh, literacy that I think, I, if I read you correctly, you're implying a, a real benefit to kind of a, a relatively standard traditional uh maybe not canon, but reading lists that students go through that sort of sets up cultural awareness in a way. Um, you put it this way, uh, efforts to decolonize curriculum, disrupt text, or other efforts to de-emphasize, quote, whiteness in the curriculum seem less likely to liberate black and brown students than to hold them further back. This is not parochialism, but a reflection of how language proficiency works. It rests on a large body of common background knowledge shared between readers, writers, speakers, and listeners. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge, yet we must, the degree to which this both reflects and grows organically from the knowledge, illusions, and idioms of the culture that dominates it. Could you explain a bit more what you yeah, mean? That's, by that's, that's E.D. Hearst Jr. in one paragraph. I mean, I just tried to summarize, you know, 40 years of E.D. Hearst Jr. scholarship into a single paragraph, and that was, and that was it. Um, you know, interestingly enough, it's funny, you know, um, I'm out of the business uh, and long out of the business of telling teachers and schools and districts, public or private, you must teach X. Um, I don't want to be that guy, but I want everyone um, to understand that these are high stakes decisions. 
uh, and, and I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, this is just a, a, a made up example, but imagine you are a um, you know, low income kid of color and, and you, you know, breeze through uh, school uh, in a skills-based curriculum and, 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 it's, it, it, and, and all your teachers are you know, adamant that they are going to decolonize the curriculum. So you, you haven't read um, you know, uh, Greek mythology, you haven't read Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and now, and you know, you, you're a straight A student, you go to law school, et cetera. Now you're up for a job um, at, a, at a law firm and you're meeting with the partners and somebody makes a reference to Pandora's box. And you say, I'm sorry, what's that? Um, and then, and then somebody explains it to you. It's like, oh, I, I you know, didn't, wasn't aware of it. Thank you very much. Well, you know, it, it, it's what would be the effect, the real world effect of that? You know, in in a in a high stakes job interview, it's like, wow, you know, seems like a bright kid, but can you believe he's never heard of that? That that's that's you 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 would just take note of that. So, in other words, um, what what rather than just talk about a canon, I, I prefer to think of this as a curatorial effort. Um, there, there, is a, there is a certain body of knowledge, and this is just how language proficiency works, that, you know, that readers and writers, uh, here I go again trying to you know, summarize Hirsch in a few sentences, um, readers and writers, or sorry, writers and speakers make assumptions about what their listeners and readers know. When those assumptions are correct, then, then, then language is fluid, organic. We, we don't even think about it. We, we, we are working from the same body of background knowledge. Well, and, and when there's a disconnect, then comprehension falls apart. This, this at, at the basic level, this is what I saw in my fifth grade classroom with you know, every, every teacher in that kind of setting has had the experience where the kid will say, well, I read it, but I didn't get it. You know, and, and well, why didn't you get it? It's, it's because of that deficiency in background knowledge. And, and then fast forward 20 years, now the, the world is, is, is ready to make harsh judgments about our students based on their perceptions of what they, they know and, and do not know. Um, I, I, I've said this for years. This, this leads to a hard decision. You can decide or we can decide as educators that we will prepare the world for the child or we can change the world for the child. Well, both of those are damn hard to do. One of them is a lot harder. So, you know, so this is why I refer to this as a curatorial effort. Um, I mean, and, and it rubs, frankly, the wrong way in, in our pluralistic age when for all the right reasons, we, we want curriculum to reflect um, uh, 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 home culture, for example. We want to you know, not just valorize that, but venerate that. that. That's not a bad impulse, but you have to understand that at some point, um, the children will leave us and they will go and operate in a world that is going to be less you know, willing and able to 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 you know um, uh, to, to 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 overlook these 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 gaps, as it were. I mean, it can it can literally harm your literacy. Um, but even if you overcome it, well, then there could be gaps in your understanding that 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 may have a consequence later on. So anyway, I, I give talks about this, and I always you know get asked at the end, well, well, so what should we teach? And I always answer, say, I don't want to answer that question. I want you to answer that question, but I want you to understand the way language proficiency works. I want you to understand that what you choose for students to learn, what you decide for all the right reasons, they don't need to know. Um, well, that's a high stakes decision, you know, and, and we have to live with the consequences of that. Uh, th this is in some way I became kind of, you know, again, an unapologetic uh, E.D. Hirsch disciple because he sees this clearly. And it's not just an issue of literacy. It's an issue of, of, of you know, civic efficacy and fellow feeling. You know, in other words, 
um, you know, we, we, we are, we, we should be trying to get all of our children to the same place with the same level of understanding, you know, giving our most disadvantaged students access to the language and knowledge that our most advantaged students have. You know, that to me, at the end of the day, his definition of equity, which I just described, is the definition of equity. Uh, it, 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 you know, it, it may not necessarily strike people like that uh, immediately who are who are more schooled in in, in critical race theory and whatnot. But I, I can't think of a better uh, better guiding principle for us as 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 educators that we, that we must take take uh, you know make great efforts to ensure that our least advantage has the same knowledge and language that our most advantage have. And that makes I, I think that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that if we're thinking of uh, either uh, recent immigrant children who are or <laughs> third generation immigrant families that are now like their kids are looking at, okay, we've been in this neighborhood for this many years, but I want to be across the river. I want to be in the, I want to work in, in upper Manhattan someday. Uh, or if you're looking, or if students who are looking at, uh, I mean, and the same thing I think is the case for, doesn't just have to be um, minority communities. I think this is also, uh, this is also socioeconomic position as well. A student who grows up in, in Appalachia who says, you know, I want to work in Chicago someday. I want to live in a big city. I want to have all those opportunities. Well, the not through any, I, I don't think through uh, systemic racial bias or systemic class bias, but literally just through reality itself, uh, that student has an additional burden to show, yes, I know the lingo. I, I, I strike you as an educated person. Yeah, I think that's what that, were, right, right or wrong. I think that's that that's reality. And and, I mean, uh, and um, yeah, you know, this this was my point about preparing the child for the world or the world for the child. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uncomfortable to to and it's unfair, you know, to to think that's the way it is. Well, but we I, all I, learn I that for me. Life's not. Yeah, I, I I don't know that it profits us to pretend it's 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 not that. You know, I want to make one other point about the disrupt text movement. Um, since you brought it up and it kind of fascinates me. I, I just wrote, it just came out this week, a, a long piece for Commentary Magazine about a lot of these issues. And, and I talked about the disrupt text folks at, at some length. And forgive me if this is just kind of you know, too wonky and legalistic, but, but it's, it's kind of fascinating to me that the culture of education and teaching assumes that we have the ability to make these decisions. So what, what you were alluding to, there, there was a teacher who, who went on Twitter and was bragging, I think, that's, uh, I don't think that's an unfair characterization about uh, getting Homer kicked off the curriculum in her Massachusetts school. And, and this was done in allyship with her students, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, you know, where exactly do we think we have the authority as teachers to do that? Um, there's a fascinating gray area here where the, the culture of education and teacher training encourages this, this kind of you know, direct advocacy on behalf of students. But the loss is something very, very different. If you read decades of case law on this, the idea of academic freedom, which, we, we, which is, you know, we assume we have, literally does not apply to K-12 education. That's, that's an idea that's from higher education, from, from, from colleges. We, you know, I mean, there have been many court decisions that say that if you are a public school teacher, you are hired speech. And that's the exact phrase, hired speech. In other words, it's school boards that have the unquestioned authority to set the curriculum. So it's kind of fat. What, what really fascinated me about that whole disrupt text movement is wait a minute, where, you know, what's the permission structure that, that you think you have the authority to do that? 
whether you think it's right or wrong. Um, you know, so, so once you make these decisions, you are essentially operating, you know, taking, assuming this authority for yourself as, as an individual teacher that the courts have said you literally do not have. Um, and, and, and this is just this, this unexamined gray area. I wrote about this in the commentary piece. Uh, and, and, and it really gets to the heart of a lot of these, you know, uh, uh, the, the critical race theory, the anti-racism stuff we were discussing earlier, where teachers think they have the authority to, 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 to be a, a quote, anti-racist teacher, regardless of what you may think of that. Um, you know, it's important that we not get out over our skis in this work. I mean, these are you know, I, I have a complicated relationship with these kind of anti-CRT bills that are wending their way through 20 odd states, but many of these completely allied this distinction. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, uh, if, if nothing else comes from them, then the idea that, hey, the, these are sensitive topics and as a teacher, I really should consult someone here, my principal, you know, the school board, et cetera. Like I, I can't unilaterally decide to come in one morning and teach the 1619 project. I mean, let me be clear, we do, we do all the time, but it's because of this kind of gray area and these, uh, these unquestioned assumptions we make about our authority as individual teachers. Um, if we start focusing on what the law says we could do, this conversation changes very, very quickly. I think that's really interesting because it, it, it at least resonates with a tension I felt in teaching over the last eight years, because I, I jumped in in uh, teaching at a small school at the time that was growing, and it was sort of, I think of it as like the early startup days of a, of a school where everybody wears a dozen hats. And one of the sure. principles that my department chair kind of taught me uh, was that the teacher is the content expert in the classroom. And over the next, and this is in a private school area, so there's a bit, it's a, it's a different setup than what you're describing, but uh, over the years, as we grew bigger, there were administrative attempts to systematize things. And there was uh, instead now classes were standards based and we were handed yeah. standards to teach. And uh, on eight years later, and I'm, I'm moving into more administrative responsibilities, I've now become aware that there are plenty of teachers who do a great job with immense freedom in the curriculum. There are other teachers who... Excuse me. There are other teachers who refuse to follow uh, the views of the founder and the kind of his goal. And a huge for us as a private school, a lot of that comes down to the fact that uh, the founder owns the land and the building and built the school. But there's also part of like on the teacher side where uh, now I, I don't know if this is legally true or not, but I think it's it's philosophically sound that at a private school, we are standing in loco parentis. I mean, our, our ability to teach is directly tied to the fact that parents have chosen to place their kids at this school because they, and they trust that school to teach certain things in a certain sure. way. And it's part of our school's responsibility to kind of both openly declare that so that parents know what they're coming for. But sure. that then also places this responsibility on us as teachers, like, now, we're not just out there teaching everything we possibly could about our subject. That's right. We're, and, and then there's also the additional responsibility of the question, when should students encounter certain ideas? Well, I, I'll make a even more base level practical argument here, which is that, um, and, and this is one of those hills that I'm willing to die on in, 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 in this work. Um, we make this job just too hard for mere mortals. And here's what I mean by that. I, I alluded to um, you know, one of my formative experiences in the classroom where my staff developer 
insisted I was the best person to know uh, what, what every child needs. And I found that to be unhelpful then and still 20 years later. If you think about the way teachers spend their time, if that's your mindset, that, that part of your job as a teacher is, is you know, everything bespoke all the time, you know, that there's not a curriculum, that it is your job to you know, um, uh, uh, find what exactly is gonna light up every single kid. Well, then that, that leads exactly where it has led. Teachers spending 10, 20, 30 hours a week on Google, on Pinterest, on teachers paid teachers, you know, tyrannized every Sunday night by the empty lesson plan book at their elbow thinking, what am I gonna teach tomorrow? Um, one of the big takeaways of, of the book that I wrote uh, about Success Academy, uh, you know, and, and the impetus of that book is, wait a minute, the, the, these schools are just killing it with, uh, in terms of getting fantastic test scores, if that's how you want to evaluate their, their, their merit, uh, with exactly the, the, the same population of students that I, I and, and countless others have struggled with for decades. How are they doing it? Well, yeah, I, you know, I think there's a limited number of lessons you could take from that for complicated reasons that we needn't discuss. But one big lesson that I took is they have a curriculum. Mm -hmm. So when they talk about lesson planning, they're not talking about what I used to do, going on Google and Pinterest for 20, 30 hours a week, um, desperately trying to create and hunt materials. They're talking about intellectual preparation. They're talking about practicing teaching the lesson. They're talking about deepening their own understanding. They're talking about studying student work. They're talking about anticipating errors. Um, if, you, if, if every teacher in America could just get that time back, and let me be clear, it's every teacher in America. Uh, there's a RAND study done some years ago that showed uh, like literally 98% of, of teachers use materials that they create or curate themselves in teaching. So you know, if any teacher says, oh, I don't do that, you know, they're lying. Um, um, <laughs> We all do it, and, and it's encouraged. Let's just differentiate. I, I, 100% agreement there. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 just it's the way we've structured this job. So imagine we could recapture that time, and now you're using it for intellectual preparation, for giving feedback. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> correcting homework becomes an afterthought. We correct it like this. Oh, I got I've got it turned in. I'll assume it's okay. Um, if we made that one change in the teaching profession that we're gonna give you a curriculum and now your job is, is to be a feedback giver, a relationship builder, goodness, how much further along would we, would we be uh, with, that, with that one simple change? You know, I, I, it's funny, I, I gave a talk about this a few years ago at the National Institute for Direct Instruction. Now granted, these are you know, curriculum devotees. And I expected to get like kind of hooted at, like, oh, you're trying to steal my authority, my, my, my autonomy. They gave me a standing ovation. And, and the response that I've always, I, whenever I bring this up is, is not, oh, you're trying to steal my authority or, or autonomy. The response was, at last, someone gets it. Um, we literally make this job too difficult for, for men and women uh, of ordinary sentience, and that's who we have in our classroom. If you've got 4 million teachers in America, you're not gonna get 4 million saints and superstars. It's teachers who wanna do a good job, do right by kids, and then take their kids to soccer. Um, you know, we, we have to make that change. Um, and if we're not willing to do that, then to, to structure this job in a way um, that, that, that ordinary people can do well, then, then we're kind of wasting our time. There's so much I want to, uh, that we, we can go on for hours, I feel like. Let's. I've been a wonderful <laughs> conversation. But I mean, there's at least 
a few things I've been thinking of as you were describing this, I want to kind of toss in. We should probably wrap this up here in a moment. Um, one of those that, um, are you familiar with uh, Catherine Berberlsing and the, uh, the Michaela oh, School? Oh, Michaela School. She, she and I um, have a mutual admiration society. We tweeted each other all the time. <laughs> um, and, and I have promised her that I'm going to make it across the pond and visit Michaela. It sounds to me very, very much like the, the British equivalent of Success Academy run by Eva Moskowitz. Uh, but sh she seems from all account, all, all appearances that, that she's doing heroic work. I can't wait to see oh, her in person. I, I, I think so. I, I became aware of her when I was listening to the, uh, the CLT po Anchored podcast and they interviewed her and uh, I, I ordered both of her books and yeah. I've only read the I, first they're, one. They're back there behind me. I have them as well. Uh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Teachers. I mean, yep. man, she, she, that, that just, that, that title grabbed grab me from the get-go. And she, she, she takes so much abuse um, for uh, it, which is, which is just profoundly unfair. I mean, she is, she is genuinely heroic. Well, I think the, I, I read the first, her first, no, or not novel, but her first essay collection from Teachers and one of the things I was just kind of astounded by, and it took me back, I kept, I was kind of looking for, and I think every teacher probably does this when we read teacher books, we're looking for silver bullets. Has somebody figured out the, the solution? I don't know that her solution is infinitely applicable, but I thought it was really interesting and it fits with what you're describing. Well, that, that was my takeaway from, from Success Academy, which is, I mean, I walked in looking exactly for that, for the lessons. And if you talk to to Catherine, or you talk to Eva Moskowitz, the founder of, of Success Academy, they will always say, look, every school can do this. I, I'm, I'm not so sure for complicated reasons, mostly yeah. being, you know, in a, it, it, parents need to exercise some choice. You can't right. impose these structures on the unwilling and they wouldn't work as well. Um, but boy, we should do more of them. That's for sure. I, I mean, every parent who wants access to this kind of education should, should be able to have it, no questions asked. The thing that Michaela School did that I thought was so interesting that I don't know how on earth my school would do this, but uh, it was this very intentional, specific time every year. And at the point she wrote this essay, they'd only been open for two years. So a lot of this was done even before they opened their doors, but to focus on curricular design and they've got a particular method where each year, the teacher is teaching a particular curricular book that they've that has been put together, and the students have very particular drills and expectations for how they learn the knowledge and demonstrate mastery. And it just so much of it, I was like, oh my goodness! And it did exactly that. The other change they made was they got rid of. Um, they do a group review of homework, but they don't individually mark up homework, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, one of the biggest changes I made in my own classroom years ago was to, uh, for when I taught a high school logic course, I made all the homework was completion based, that's how mm -hmm. I did the grade, and we would go over it together as a group, but I didn't worry about checking everybody's syllogisms, that's what my quizzes are for, and it, it did that exact thing, it bought me back the time. Now, Part of what we've been discussing, I just think there's, uh, you mentioned a phrase I love earlier, which I uh, teach text. That school should teach text. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing in that, uh, uh, I know it's, uh, you're thinking of Edie Hirsch. I'm thinking of uh, Mortimer Adler and the great books of the Western world approach. And I found a lot of value in teaching uh, what, I, at least in my mind, are very difficult courses at upper level high school humanities. When I, when I kind of remove myself as the central authority in the classroom and I put the text there and say, okay, we're going to read the Republic for three weeks and we're going to see what Plato can teach us. 
my job changes a lot. Instead of being a teacher who needs to somehow be like a mini college professor and be prepared with a lecture each day or doing what you described and download a Teachers Pay Teacher Play-Doh unit, uh, instead, the class becomes, read this, what questions do you have? Uh, let's talk about these key areas together. And then I'm gonna quiz or test you, or we're gonna do a project or something on what we've just read. And then we're gonna move on and do it again. And it, it puts, putting the text at the center of the classroom seems yeah. to remove a lot of pressure from me as the teacher. Uh, yeah, it, it's also just really, uh, when it works well, just, engaging and even thrilling um uh you know classroom uh, uh culture uh, i mean my uh even though i was you know my, my training is as an elementary school teacher for the last several years on and off i've taught a a senior seminar for at a charter school in new york city a, a civic seminar and and basically i would always tell my students we have one text in this class and it's the constitution and uh, I mean, I won't bore you with the details, but the conceit of the class is is that you know there's always constitutional issues in the news. So I would, I would want to be flexible, and and look at what was going on in the world. And 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 you know one of my pedagogical goals being to to for kids to leave that class understanding that the Constitution is not a you know dry and dusty 230 year old document. It's very much in, in you know alive in 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 your lives right now. So I'd always be on the lookout for whether it was issues of say. You know, stop and frisk policing in New York City, um, immigration. When, when, when Antonin Scalia died, we did an instant unit on, um, on originalism versus the living constitution. There's always opportunities, but it always does come back to, to, to the text, to, to, to the constitution. And it was just, you know, just thrilling to listen to kids when it works well, have these, you know, really thoughtful discussions um, focused in, in the, it doesn't matter whether it's Plato, the constitution, whatever, but that, but that habit of mind that you can encourage in kids to like, to look for evidence, let's see what the text says, let's, do, and I would always love to point this out because we always looked at Supreme Court decisions. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite moments in this class was two years ago, one kid, and I can't remember what we were discussing, he just kind of threw up his hands in the air and said, I hate this class, there's never any right answers. <laughs> like thank you yeah and I, I i love to point out that like like some of the you know most important supreme court decisions ever they're not 9-0 they're 5-4 they're 6-3 yes. in other words people with you know the best education money could buy disagree um about what that text says so you know of course there's not going to be a right answer of course there's not going to be a resolution that's the point hmm so good uh, the other one last thought uh, I want to make sure to get in on the show. Um, several years ago, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Christopher Perrin, the uh, head of the Classical Academic Press. Uh, they do a lot of curriculum, particularly for the classical school world. And uh, he, he told me an idea that uh, I, I found fascinating. Um, that uh, in his mind, the 80-20 uh, principle applies to teachers as well. That in a given faculty, about 20% of your faculty, if that many, uh, are going to be this like amazing philosophical could read anything and teach anything level teacher, but the vast majority of your teachers are exactly what you described. They are they want to be good teachers. Uh, they need structure and resources and initial yeah. handholding, but then they really they want to be done at four p.m. because they need to make dinner, clean the house, get to the soccer game, and uh, be good church members and uh, or, right. or involved in extra things. And uh, but they're not going to necessarily be the people who are like, oh, you know, I've never read the Republic before. I'm going to make sure to read 
the Republic and two secondary sources uh, about that so that I can adequately be prepared to teach the Republic tomorrow morning. Most people aren't going to do that. That was really helpful for me because I'm definitely in that category of like, oh, I'm not intimidated by yeah, yeah, teaching no, I, something I, I, I I've never read before, but there, uh, I'll just, I'll read it and we'll figure it out. Most people aren't like that. So I think when you're talking about the, uh, if we can figure out that curriculum piece, I think for the vast majority of teachers, uh, that's a, that would be an enormous benefit. And they, for those, for that small minority, that's like, Ooh, that's too confining. Those are the people in an ideal world. If we're dreaming of an ideal world, those are the people I'd want to be like constantly working on the next version of that curriculum. Cause I, I assume no, I think this way. it's, it's never yeah. a fixed point. It's always a question of how do we do this a little bit better? How do we help kids read, write, and think a little bit more sharply? How do we master this a little bit more perfectly? Yeah, I, I think that's especially crucial at the elementary school level. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not a teacher basher, um, but if your reform strategy is, is uh, to improve teacher quality, great, of course, we should improve teacher quality. If, if, we, if we think we're going to suddenly, you know, like lure the cognitive elite away from other professions and become, you know, uh, second grade reading teachers, I admire the optimism, but I'm not sure it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Um, you know, my, my, my rueful joke here is I, you know, I, I invoke Donald Rumsfeld, um, you know, his famous quote. I say, you go to school with the teachers you have, not the teachers you wish you had. Uh, his, his quip about, you know, we, you go to, go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. So, I, you know, I, 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 I encourage a clear-eyed view of that. Um, look, there, there should be no reason why uh, a, 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 an ordinary man or woman of, 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 of diligence and competence shouldn't be effective. But it's up to us to make them effective, not say, boy, wouldn't it be better if we could lure people away from, you know, from investment banking and law and, 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 and become third grade teachers. That's not going to happen. Make the people you have better. And, and you make them better by making their jobs doable, by giving them a curriculum and, and saying, your job is to teach this. And look, I think there's just practical benefits. You know, we, we, we talk about the teacher shortage and, and the churn in the classroom. How much easier and how much more satisfying would it be for people to go home year one feeling competent? I mean, you know, I was, you know, I was scandalized when I was in ed school 20 years ago by the simple refusal to make, to train me, to, to you know, make me better at my job. And I mean, I've made sport of this over the years that if we train teachers the way we trained air traffic controllers, we would say, look, everybody crashes a plane their first year. It's okay, you get better. You know, you gotta learn these things on the job. You know, we, we don't say this to any other profession. Um, you know, if, 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 if you know, and, and this idea of we have to create our own curriculum, you know, if, if you were to hire a contractor to build you a deck, instead of saying, there's the lumber yard, you'd say, here's a chainsaw, there's your trees. You're the best person to know what, you know, what, what lumber the, the, the deck should be made out of. It's just, it's kind of crazy. The, 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 the cognitive demands that we make on teachers. Um, and, and if we codified the job in a much more reasonable way, people would feel successful from the start. They'd be more encouraged to stick around. I mean, the teacher turnover after within five years is alarming in this country, especially in urban areas. Uh, it, it's almost like a hazing ritual. Like we think it's not authentic unless we make you suffer for, for a couple of years. I, you know, I, I, I don't know why we do that. It seems to me like an easily remedi remediable problem. Um, but first, it, it starts with recognizing it for what it is. Well, 
Robert, there are so many great things you've given us today. I wonder if we could kind of uh, bring this to a conclusion. Uh, on the optimistic curmudgeon, we're always looking to have a realistic view of some area that uh, typically, at least I think, contemporary society has a cloudy or wrong view of. I think you've given us a, a great bit of realism about teaching today. Uh, I wonder if we could kind of close on sort of that hopeful note that we're also always looking for. Um, now, you've given us lots of kind of advice points, but I wonder if you can kind of summarize that or, or go in a different direction. Uh, what do you see as the best way forward for education today? And I want to contextualize that just a little bit. Uh, what would you tell a young teacher who wants to equip students of all races to pursue the best opportunities that life may present? What advice would you give that kind of a teacher? Um, hire yourself up to a school that will support you specifically on curriculum. Um, I mean, it's, it's a shame that it has to come to this because this should again be like, you know, basic blocking and tackling. Um, and, and look, you know, I, I don't say this a lot. I, I earnestly do believe there's, there's good, better and best in terms of curriculum. Um, but no teacher should be put in the position that I just described of being, you know, uh, uh, of having their first couple of years in the classroom turned into a hazing ritual where uh, you have to work 80, 90 hours a week just to, to, to get the basic, you know, rudimentary tools of your trade. I, I would even go as far, and I've said this in other contexts, I, I would rather my child's teacher be a, um, you know, devoted uh, uh, or devoted to a curriculum that I don't like than being forced to do one that I like and they dislike. In other words, but, but in a, oh, I guess to say it differently, any curriculum is better than none. I mean, I, you, you and I share a fondness for content and for classical education. But if I were a teacher, I would rather um, uh, be, be spend my first couple of years in a school with a curriculum that I didn't care for, but at least it allowed me to focus on my craft, on my classroom management, on giving feedback. You know, then once I get my, you know, the ground under my feet, then I can go off to, you know, Thales or, or some other school that's more in line with my values, uh, but at least I've learned my craft. Um, and I, I, okay, I, you would ask me to be optimistic, not pessimistic. So I, I, I can't say what I'm really thinking, which is assume that your ed school is not gonna be of very much use to you here. And you're gonna have to do this on your own, but understand what you're getting yourself into and, and do your best to start your career in a place that gives you a curriculum that wants you to focus on being you know, a good instructional deliverer, not an instructional designer, because both of those things are hard. Doing them both at the same time is truly overwhelming. Oh, Robert, thank you so much. Those are, those are great words, uh, and hopefully they are uh, good advice for, for folks who are looking to go into teaching, because you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we've got a shortage of, of teachers, and we need teachers. I mean, uh, teachers are the people who get to stand next to parents and religious leaders and uh, help uh, help prepare the next generation to step into our shoes. Uh, now, where, where can people find and follow your work online? Oh, I'm not hard to find. Um, I, I have a complicated relationship with social media, but, but I feel, you know, as, as somebody who does this work, somewhat obligated to be visible. So you can find me on Twitter at rpondicio, uh, which is my first initial and my last name. And, and um, you can email me at rpondicio at aol.com. Do not make fun of my AOL address, Josh. It's, I've, I've had it longer than you've been alive and I, I will not give it up. It's gonna be cool again someday, mark my words. Mm, mm. When Amazon crashes, AOL, will be, AOL stock will be on the rise and those two shares that I've held on to are gonna make me a gajillionaire. <laughs> but let, wow. let's please keep in touch. I've, I've enjoyed the heck out of this.
Oh, this has been really great. We'll have to have you back on another another episode uh, for our next season, and uh, we'll we'll find something else to to chat about so we aren't repeating. Uh, and and this fall, for... I, I look forward to hopefully coming to visit uh, to visit your school and visiting your great. classroom. I'll be uh, over at the uh, Apex campus and uh, shoot me a shoot me an email. Let me know when you're coming in. I'll make sure to uh, arrange a tour if you'd like to see that one. Or there's always the uh, Thales Rollsville campus is also uh, a great spot to to tour. I'll see you this fall. All right. Uh, well, thank you, listeners, for uh, joining Robert and myself for another episode of the Optimistic Curmudgeon. You've been listening to another conversation on the Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, we're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful. <laughs>